This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Alex, first of all, what was the intro music today? Oh, I know you can turn on. Uh, sorry, I had to take off a mic or took off my mask. Uh, that was Negative Land's Aluminum or Glass, a song I've probably played before the show like 50 times. Negative Land uh, was on airplay at WNUR, and then they put out an advertisement for Mertz Pills, which make you smarter. I got to find that advertisement that they put out for us. Do they work? Uh, no. But they have other side effects that are nice. This is not the media. This is hell with a new college semester or term beginning for college students. What better time to reconsider exactly what we do know about student loans? After all, we are told student loan debts total $1.6 trillion. Campaign promises to forgive all that debt sounded great, especially for someone like me, whose debt now totals nearly five times the original money I borrowed. To me, that forgiveness sounded too good to be true, just like the loans the financial aid office offered at the university I attended. That Those sounded too good to be true. Back then, I was told that the increased wages and earnings I would make from having a college degree or two would more than make up for the money I owed as long as I stayed on top of my payments. As it turns out, the job market for a bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed college graduate with degrees in history and English was not as great as either I or the financial aid officers believed or suggested it would be. Instead, I am now receiving letters in the mail stating the Department of Education has no idea who owns any of my loans anymore. However, they tell me if I go into some three-year program where I pay minimal amounts and as long as during that time I don't suddenly find a job or somehow fall into the fortune that can pay off all of those debts, my loans will be forgiven, which I find odd because if they do not know who owns my debt, how do they know those lenders will forgive my loans? It's one of those very confusing aspects of student loans that when you stop to think about it, doesn't make any sense at all. As it turns out, that $1.6 trillion figure of cumulative student debt also doesn't make that much sense either. The way they come up with uh, what turns out to be a very fictitious debt total is, as today's guest argues, nothing but arbitrary and determined in a system that is so opaque. We really are not certain exactly how much student debt is actually owned. In a few minutes, we'll try to clear up all that confusion when we speak with John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie, the numbers thrown around in the debate over whether to cancel student debt are made up. John is professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and a visiting professor of law at Fordham University School of Law. He teaches and writes on tax theory and policy as well as the federal student loan program. In addition to academic writing in the Georgetown Law Journal, the Tax Law Review and elsewhere, he was written he has written for the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. John is currently writing a book on hidden welfare state spending for Yale University Press. You can follow John on Twitter at Jake Brooks Tax. That's Jake Brooks Tax. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? What's new in your world? Uh, Sub-freezing temperatures for like six days now. Mm -hmm. uh, the last four days have been 
about half of the road and pathways have been covered in sheets of ice. Mm-hmm. Walking my dog this morning in the park, and there's a man intently piloting a remote control car from inside his own car. <laughs> is this over? We'll, we'll find a way to survive. Was this out at uh, Mount Trashmore? Yeah, it was wonderful. To see. Oh my god, that so, guy! That guy was having so much fun. How difficult is it for you to walk your dog nowadays because there's so much ice on the ground? Is Evanston doing any better of a job at uh, taking care of the ice on the roads and sidewalks? No, nah, we both wear special booties when we go outside. <laughs> you and your dog? Yeah. <laughs> Do they have cleats on them? Oh, uh, well, hers does. <laughs> I uh, was going to go for a walk in the park right outside my back door. I got to the bottom of our stairs, got to the alley, and we turned around, and went right back in because it's so bad on the streets right now. Also, who is joining you over in the producer's booth right now? Yeah, hi, this is Sebastian. Hey, Sebastian, how you doing? I didn't know which of our potential producers it was. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having having me back. And you will be receiving something in the mail from a group called Not The Media. Just know that that is from us. All right. (laughs) Some of our Patreon patrons may remember that back in 2020, as a holiday gift, a family member got me a subscription to the small town weekly newspaper, the Houghton Lake Resorter, from the resort community where my family has been vacationing every year since before I was born. During the 2020 presidential campaign, the letters to the editor page gave a unique insight into what was happening in a not-so-well-off part of the north-central Lower Peninsula area of Michigan, which is often referred to as being part of flyover country. Well, for Christmas this year, my girlfriend gave me a two-year subscription, and the first issue arrived yesterday according to the Your Opinion section of the paper. The community seems to be made up of two groups. Freedom hoarders, who are opposed to any government mandate, including taillights, safety belts, airbags, and brakes on cars. And the other group is... Marxists who want to end the Electoral College. But more importantly than the throwdown of hoarders versus Marxists in Roscommon County, Michigan, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. It's not just through getting swag. There's a couple of other ways you can support This Is Hell as well. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Thanks to those of you who have recently gone to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and picked up some This Is Hell merch. Thanks to... Hassan A. of Hamtramck, Michigan, who picked up a This Is Hell camping mug. Hassan, if you're listening, it is so cool to me that someone in Hamtramck has picked up some This Is Hell stuff. Not only did Hamtramck just swear in their first Muslim mayor in a town that, as near as I can remember, has only had Polish mayors, and just swore in an all-Muslim city council... I mean, that's pretty cool. On top of that, my bocce, my Polish grandmother, used to own a bar on Conant 
called the Star Bar, which I think is now called the White Star. By the way, in case you are wondering, I'm not Polish, but a cousin is Polish, and his grandmother was my bocce, and she insisted me calling her bocce. Also, thanks to Dennis Casey of Pittsford, New York, who also picked up a This Is Hell camping mug, which is weird because a friend of mine and the show who plays guitar and does some singing for the band Flogging Molly also has the name Dennis Casey. Quite a coincidence. Finally, thanks to Russell M. of Pittsburgh, who went to thisishell.com and picked up a This Is Hell t-shirt. Thanks, Hassan, Dennis, and Russell. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest, John Brooks, and he's going to be talking to us about the big student loan lie. You can email us your thoughts on the show, your suggestions for guests and topics, and whatever you want us to share with the listening audience by emailing us at chuck at thisishell.com, messaging us via Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweeting at us at thisishellradio. Listener Dan B. writes to us with a guest suggestion. Dan writes, hi, Chuck. Happy New Year to you and Alex and everybody on your staff. If it's not too late to say that, I hope you had great holidays. I have an interview suggestion, which was inspired in part by your recent reference to Aldous Huxley's experience with LSD therapy in Saskatchewan. Roberto Lovato has a new article in California's Alta Journal about the so-called psychedelic renaissance, the coming big business of legalized psychedelics like psilocybin, the current decriminalization of these substances for therapeutic treatment for PTSD, and how such treatments are often out of reach for or denied to people of color. Roberto's long-form piece examines these processes in San Francisco's Mission District specifically as another form of gentrification and of cultural appropriation that has accompanied other forms that we're likely more familiar with. I figured it's a great topic for This Is Hell, and Roberto would be a great guest. I've heard him interviewed many times, and he's always fascinating. His writing in his article and in his previous book, Unforgetting, a memoir of family migration gangs and revolution in the Americas, and in various other pieces he's written, is excellent. Roberto told me he would be glad to do an interview with you. Thanks for all of your amazing work. As always, I'm looking forward to another year of hell. Cheers, Dan. Dan, first of all, I'm looking forward to having a This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party so you can attend yet another one of our parties, hopefully this summer. And secondly, it's not too late to wish someone a Happy New Year. In fact, I do not know when it is too late to wish someone Happy New Year with the Jewish New Year beginning sometime in September, the Chinese New Year starting sometime in February, and so many other New Year's. It's likely never too late to wish anyone Happy New Year. But when it comes to a new year beginning on January 1st, my rule is if you haven't seen someone since whatever new year began, it's perfectly acceptable to wish someone Happy New Year. As for the book you referred to that we received in the mail from an unknown admirer, Wonder Drug, LSD in the Land of Living Skies, by Hugh D.A. Goldring and Nicole Marie Burton. You can hear all about that by listening to our January 5th show when we mentioned it on air. Finally, the article Dan sent where he suggests the author to be a guest on the show, it's from altaonline.com, and it's headlined, The Gentrification of Consciousness, which is a fantastic headline. San Francisco's Mission District has become synonymous with well-paid tech workers displacing non-white long-time residents. It's now the setting for a new battle as the coming psychedelic industrial complex, that's another great term, threatens to strip hallucinogenic drugs of their historical and religious significance. In it, 
Author Roberto Lovato writes, what for centuries has been a largely taboo or prohibited experience is on the verge of becoming fully legal in majority, minority, California and other states. The growing and largely white business of blowing minds adds to the economic distress of poor non-white communities while denying them access to the powerful mind-altering substances that might help them. The fate of the psychedelic underworld hangs in the balance. As it stands, the dismal statistics documenting access to legalized psychoactive medicines look no better than employment statistics for people of color at Facebook, Twitter, and other Silicon Valley companies whose employees and investors are again putting the Bay Area in the vanguard of the next movement. Again, thanks, Dan, and we are looking into Roberto's availability so we can talk psychedelics and gentrification, which are not two things I ever thought I would say in the same sentence here on This Is Hell. And in retrospect, actually, there are two things I figured that would come up at some point. We'll have more of your listener feedback following our conversation with John R. Brooks, who again wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is Hell, with an alleged $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, forgiving such a huge sum of money would seem like a fantasy, if not entirely impossible. With that kind of debt vanishing overnight, who knows what impact that would have on the banking system or the entire U.S. economy? Besides, as former borrowers would argue, how is it fair for those who did pay off their student loan debts? Putting aside that school used to be far less expensive and students graduated or dropped out with far less student debt in the past, how much do we actually understand how student debt works or how that $1.6 trillion total was determined? Here to hopefully give us a better understanding of the opaque world of student debt, law scholar John R. Brooks wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie. The numbers thrown around in the debate over whether to cancel student debt are made up. John, welcome to This Is Hell. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me. John is currently writing a book on hidden welfare state spending for Yale University Press. And when that book comes out, we will be alerting all of our listeners. You can follow John on Twitter at Jake Brooks Tax. That's Jake Brooks Tax. I got a couple of general questions to ask you right at the beginning. During the 2020 Democratic presidential can uh, campaign primaries, some candidates were offering anywhere from a forgiveness of all student of all loans up to $50,000 and others were promising a complete forgiveness of all student loans entirely. At that time, how likely did you think student loan forgiveness truly would happen if a Democrat was elected president? I thought pretty likely, actually. I mean, I'm not I don't have a great insight into politics, but it seemed to be the consensus that at least 10,000 and maybe maybe 50 was uh, something all the candidates were talking about. I think all debt was probably a little bit more of a stretch, but something seemed to be uh, at least likely. So what do you think has led to the slow process of that debt cancellation happening? It's a really good question. I, uh, I think that there is um, a lot of reluctance within the Department of Education and within uh, uh, federal student aid, the, the sub-agency that runs the debt portfolio, FSA. Um, and, and maybe some of that got filtered up into the, you know, the, the, the bosses, but I, I, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's a mystery to me how this is stalled. 
And you know that one of the big things that people say is that it might have a negative impact on the economy if we forgave this debt, or it might have a negative uh, impact on the banking sector. What would be the impact on the economy? Do we know if it if it would be either positive or negative of uh, forgiving even ten or fifty thousand dollars of every student's loan debt? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and and it partially answers your last question. I think that there is there part of the what maybe what slowed this down was voices, nominally progressive voices that were saying, "Oh, this you know, don't do this. This is not fair, or it's gonna it's gonna create worse problems if there is some forgiveness, um, and maybe there'd be some economic repercussions." But I think that there's a couple of things that are really important to understand. Um, of that 1.6 trillion, something like 1.3 trillion is actually owned literally by the federal government. Like they are the lender. Um, now that's not always been the case. You mentioned your your loans; they probably were from an era where the banks were doing the lending and and just had the interest guaranteed by the government. But um, but since 2010, all of the lending has really been by the federal government, and even some of those old bank-based loans have been bought out um, by, by the federal government. That was part of the sort of big bailouts in 2008. Um, they also bought a lot of the, the federal student loan uh, debts uh, back. So, so to say that this is going to have an economic effect on, say, the banking sector or something like that, not, not really going to happen. This is all just a question of what the federal government can sort of absorb through its budget and on its and its balance sheet essentially and and there really is almost you know no no limit to what they what they can what they can absorb so you doubt the accuracy of the 1.6 trillion dollars of debt that's outstanding if that number is exaggerated what explains that exaggeration? Why exaggerate the amount of student debt? Is this a political maneuver or is it something else? Well, I think I want to I want to make a distinction here that it's it's not so much that it's exaggerated. It's that it's inflated deliberately as a way to try to create more profit for the taxpayers, essentially for originally for the banks. But now that since the, the taxpayers are the, are the lender, it's profit for the taxpayers. So so when I say it's made up, what I what I mean is that if you look at a given person's debt, amount, like if they just look at their latest statement from their loan servicer, that number is increasingly disconnected from what a person has actually received as a, as a benefit. Um, and, and so to try to say like, oh, you know, if we canceled $10,000 of a person's debt or something like that, that that would mean somehow they've received something extra above and beyond you know, the, 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 the value of going to college or something like that. Um, it, it, so, so it, it's, it's complicated and the piece gets into this and it's complicated partly because the government has already banked that expected profit. Um, so I don't want to say that that's not like somebody doesn't, doesn't see that effect somewhere. What I, what I'm trying to say though, is that for a given borrower, Looking at the nominal amount of debt on their statement tells us almost nothing about what they've received or what they owe in a in a sort of a, a moral sense. So what impact do you think that deliberate inflation has on the way that the public understands and views student loan debts and more importantly, how government policies are focused on student loan debt? So I think there's a couple things that 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 go into this, and and maybe we can start with this sort of you know inflation point, which is that the 
a huge amount of that 1.6 trillion or even 1.7 trillion, depending on how you're counting, is 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 an is interest. Um, the interest that's charged on student loans is very high. Uh, it goes back to the era where this was bank-based lending, and the the deliberate um, intent was to create profit for the banks so that they would, you know, make, make these loans. Um, but then when the student loan you know, system was fully absorbed back into the government in 2010, those interest rates stayed, stayed very high. Um, and, and so if people are having trouble paying their loans or, or if they're not being able to pay more than you know, the, that interest, that interest keeps accumulating and the, and the debt keeps growing. You mentioned at the, at the top that you're, you've now, you're, you're, your particular debt now is five times what the original amount was. And that's, we see the effect of that, in, that interest growing. What the problem is, is that then when you look at the a given debtor's number and you say, oh, they owe X dollars, if, if a lot of that money is, is actually this, just, just this accumulated interest, it's something different than what they actually borrowed and what they actually received. It's a function of a choice by Congress to inflate that number at a very high rate. Now they could they could choose differently. That that's that's what I'm saying when it's sort of arbitrary or made up. It's just somebody somebody wrote some numbers down in a, in a piece of legislation decades ago. It doesn't actually relate directly to what they've um, received as as a benefit. And in fact, if if you've paid, you have a lot of situations where somebody maybe is just paying their interest because the loan is so high that they've just that's all they can afford. If over the ten or even longer, you know, more years that they've been doing that, they may pay back well more than they ever borrowed, but still have the amount of their debt grow. And so you have this sort of contradictory or 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 you know conflicting things where you have a situation where a borrower might have already paid back more than they borrowed. But because of the way interest just keeps accumulating, it looks like they've they, they haven't paid back anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And one of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading your article is how the media accepts this number of one point six trillion dollars. And I don't, I don't know if there is a better. I guess my question to you is: Is there a better way for the media to report <laughs> on that figure other than using that one point six trillion dollar figure, which you say is deliberately inflated? Can is can they explain that debt in a better way than just saying the, the United States is in debt for one point six million dollar trillion dollars when it comes to student loans? You know, it's really it's really hard. And I think if, if you, you know, you've read the piece, if readers take a look at the piece, I mean, I spent some time trying to break down these numbers because it's really is is kind of complicated. And and we've suffered from a lack of clear data. I'm not you know, there's there's in, in the sort of student loan circles, the people I talk to, we sort of go back and forth on this and trying to figure out, like, how much of the outstanding portfolio is actually just accrued and capitalized interest versus the original amount loaned. And it's really hard to figure it out. They, there's not good public data. It's not even clear that the education department has that data. So they, it's very hard to know how much how much of that $1.6 trillion is represents the original amounts loaned versus the accumulation of this very high interest over time. So, you know, I, I wish the media could report on this more clearly, but it, but it's, but it's really hard to. But what I really, am, and the main motivation for the piece is that I really object to this very simplistic um, argument that you see from a from a lot of people, even even left of center, 
who would say, if you forgive $50,000 of a person's debt, that's like you gave them $50,000. And wouldn't it be better to spend that money on something else? Like that's the kind of a standard, a standard argument. And, you know, in, in a lot of circumstances, that's a fair way to approach things. Should I give, a, you know, a dollar to X or to Y? But it, but it really is disconnected from what's going on with student loans because it's making this fundamental mistake of saying that, that the amount of a person's debt represents directly represents some benefit they've received. And that if you give them, if you, if you knock off part of their debt, that's like, you know, giving them even more or something like that. Um, and, and that is, I think, a really hard, a hard thing to, to grasp uh, that people like kind of look at this number and say, why are we giving all this number, you know, money? Why would we give all this money away to college graduates and, and lawyers and stuff like that? And the thing that I'm trying to say is you're not giving money away. You're just, say, decreasing profit to the government. That's a different that's different. You write, what are the lies? You ask, actually, uh, what are the lies that lead to these fictional numbers? And you write first the calculations of overall student debt. Treat the cost of a student's education as equal to a school's net tuition charge, even though net tuition is a highly variable number across schools and students. What happens to the borrower's understanding of their debt when that number is so highly variable? Yeah, this this is something that I think is is sort of even before we get into what happens once you take out the loan, I think it's really important to understand what determines the price a student pays for college. Because you know, colleges have gotten extremely good now at essentially price discrimination where they can figure out to a pretty high degree of accuracy what a person's ability to pay is. And they will charge a person based on that. Um, we call it sort of tuition discounting, where, where everybody is charged a different price for college um, through a function, you know, because of the combination of, of, of grants and financial aid and, and different types of scholarships and so on. So, um, <clears throat> and, you know, in-student tuition, in-state tuition, out-of-state tuition, all this kind of stuff adds up to a world where everybody is charged a different price. And what determines that price is literally what, what you can pay. You know, they, they sort of figure out what you can afford and then they say, okay, pay that amount. But everybody's getting the same product, right? So, so you have people who are buying the same product. I mean, you know, we'll, obviously schools differ, but at, for, at a given school, let's say, everybody's buying the same product. Everybody's buying the same degree, but they're paying very, very different prices. And so then to say, okay, I've had to, I, I borrowed X dollars to pay the price a school charged me, and and that somehow that that number represents the value of the thing I've received. There's a disconnect there because everybody's received the same thing, but people have paid very different prices and therefore borrowed very different amounts. And so what's going on is that. The school is basically saying, okay, here's a full payer. We're going to charge them the full like list price tuition. And we're going to use some of that money to subsidize the people who pay less. Um, and it, you know, I teach in a graduate school. The you know, professional schools are major profit centers this way because, because you can generally get people to pay more. So they say, all right, we'll you know, jack up the tuition on, on law students and business school students and use that to help fund the rest of the university. 
So what some, what, what's happening then, particularly when there's loans involved, is that somebody is agreeing to become personally liable, you know, put on their personal balance sheet and, and subject themselves to you know, legal enforcement of money that's not just going to them, but it's going to everybody else um, as well. So, so this, this system of net tuition is designed as a way to try to spread the costs of higher education among families based on their ability to pay. But when you then run it through the loan system, you create a system where we then are telling everybody, no, you, have bar you, you actually received $100,000 of value, whatever it is, to you. It's, it's, we're imagining that all of that loan went only to the borrower. And that's just not what's happening. The money is getting funneled through the borrower out to the rest of the university. You mentioned that this change, did you say 2011? That's when the federal government took over soon? Uh, yeah, 20, yeah, the law changed in 2010. It took a, a, a little while, but that, that, yeah, it was part of, it's actually part of the, um, uh, it was part of the Obamacare legislation, actually, that they also nationalized the student loan program. Did anybody notice that was part of Obamacare? No, <laughs> it was it was amazingly uh, subtle. Um, I mean, the, the people who were working on it obviously did, and and it was it was also you know um, it, it, it wasn't. I want I don't know is 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 overly simplistic. Right, I mean, right. I think there was an there was an attempt. There wasn't. This was that following a period where a lot of schools had kind of started to abuse and and the, and the lenders. There's a lot of abuse of the system. Um, and so there was some reaction to that, uh, where they said, basically, you know, you guys were, you know, we're going to put you guys out of, out of business. And there was also a way to increase money to the government. It was a way partially to fund Obamacare. Um, cause if you didn't have to subsidize banks to do it, if you just kept that money yourself, the government kept that money itself, then, then that they actually saved, saved money on this. So by bringing the student loan program in house, they, they generate a little bit of extra revenue to help pay for. Obamacare, but it really was, it's taken a while. There's also, it was also the same legislation that really expanded a lot of the income-driven repayment programs, which, you know, we can, we can talk about if you'd like, but that was something that was very subtle. I remember talking to people, at, you know, around that time to say, hey, you know what, all student loans now, you only have to pay 10% of your income. And everybody would say, what, that, 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 that's a thing? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's the law here, man. But it took a little while to, to, really, to, to really filter out. And, and even today, you see a lot of people who don't realize that 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 the federal government is the dominant lender, is the only lender within the federal student loan program, and actually owns even some of the loans that had originally been made by by banks. And part of the reason that that's opaque is that the federal government still contracts out to private servicers. So all the a lot of the companies that used to make the loans, in order to not put them completely out of business in 2010. The government instead said, okay, you can service the loan. So you can sort of send people the bills. You don't even send them the money. The money goes straight to the education department. But but they but that you have to go through this private company to like, I don't know, figure out what your payments are and, and change your repayment plans and stuff like that. And those are all private entities. So people just interact with this private entity and they don't realize that that it's the the federal government that actually owns the loan. So are borrowers then uh, protected more so from the abusive tendencies of the banking industry with the federal government taking over student loans? No, unfortunately, the servicers uh, have still some of the same problems that they've had before. I mean, it's it's different. Like they don't the, the, the way in which they 
make money has changed, but unfortunately it has not solved the problem of uh, a sort of bad service. I mean, there, there, um, it's, it's, for example, a lot of people would benefit from some of these income driven repayment programs, but the servers don't have, the servicers don't have often the right incentives, financial incentives to get people into um, one of these programs. They're paid sort of a fixed fee based on the borrower. So the more time that they have to spend with a borrower, the less money they make. And so they, they sometimes default to the simplest solution, maybe push somebody into something called forbearance or, or something like that, rather than go through a, the process of trying to apply for an income-driven repayment program. That's just an example. But um, the, yeah, the, the private loan servicers generally are not, are not doing a great job for borrowers. A lie implies this is purposeful and intentional, misleading misrepresentation. Why lie about the relationship between tuition and student debt? Why be purposely disingenuous and misleading? And more importantly, who benefits from such lies, as you call them? Yeah, I think this is this is. Um, oh well, boy, this is this is a this is a long a long story. But but please take your time. We have all the time in the world. <laughs> you mentioned early on, you know, in in, in the intro about. And, and it's a really important fact in the in the background of this is how the state support for education has has decreased over time, and we've put more and more of the cost on individual students as opposed to you know uh, public funding. And I think that's a really important story to explain the rise of tuition, especially at the public universities. Private universities are are obviously a different issue, but a big rise of, in the tuition of public universities is is actually about the cut in st in state funding you know people want to blame um uh, uh waste and fraud or, or abuse or things like that at at a university and, and i'm sure obviously there's money being wasted here and there but but most of the effect of tuition is that cut in in state funding now, part the 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 sort of idea behind some of that was the idea that like why should this is the sort of the claim it, it, you know should the taxpayers be be providing heavy support for people who are you know college graduates who might go on to actually have to be among the more successful members of society and then maybe a better way to do it would be to do this kind of price discrimination i talked about so so instead of having low tuition for everyone raise the the list price tuition higher but then discount it for people who who need um, more who, who need more sort of support to to afford it who have less less family means to support the tuition so there is a kind of a a deliberate move away from uh, away from sing a, a sort of low single tuition price for everybody to this more um, means tested sort of way of 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 charging tuition. Um, and, and I think that was, you know, with good intention uh, to, to a degree. Um, but, but, but that's then how that's now the system that we use to, to sort of fund fund higher ed is this is this sort of price discrimination kind of means tested system where everybody is charged um, more or less what they can afford. So, so the, 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 the lie there, I guess, is, is pretending that, the, the, that, that that hasn't happened, that everybody's being charged the same tuition and that, and that tuition equals the cost of your, of your education. So you know, we've talked about that. That's just 
not the case anymore because the, two, the there's this disconnect between the price and the and the good, if you will. Uh, the price is not a measurement of the value of the good; it's a measurement of how much you're willing to pay. Um, but I think that that because this is this is you know to a large degree how higher ed is funded now. There's you know who benefits from this is the higher ed industry. Um, that I think there is some some reluctance to uh, to be totally transparent about this. Um, there, there's also a sort of a weird um, you know, competition that in a way where it's kind of like nobody wants to be the most expensive school, but you also, also don't want to be the least expensive school, you know, so like the, there's there's a sort of a, a weird, um, I don't know, if game theory, if you want to call it, I don't know, sort of strategy that schools follow where they sort of are trying to maximize this relationship between their list price tuition and their what they call their discount rate. So they say, do we want to have low tuition and a low discount rate? or a high tuition and a high discount rate. And they have to kind of figure out what that is. But all that is a little bit like nobody really wants to be really upfront about what's going on there. We are speaking with law scholar John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie. The numbers thrown around in the debate over whether to cancel student debt are made up. John is professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and a visiting professor of law at Fordham University School of Law. He's currently writing a book on hidden welfare state spending for Yale University Press, so look out for that. And follow John on Twitter, at Jake Brooks Tax. So, do lower taxes mean more expensive college education? And how where if and if that is the case, how where do you think the public is that lower taxes do mean they have to pay more for their kids' school? Yeah, I mean this you you, you know the, the sort of hidden welfare state point here comes comes to the fore, and this is this is part of why I got got into this subject in the first place is is this relationship between you know, taxes and then paying, you know, paying directly for things that would otherwise be tax supported. I think this, the, the student loan situation is, is really um, maybe a little bit unique though, because I guess I think it's one thing that's just, I want to be really clear about is that the student loan portfolio is a profit center for the government. It is, it is, it, 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 it leads to lower taxes in part because it makes so much money or at least has has made so much money. This is it's it's less true today as some of these forgiveness programs and income driven repayment programs ramp up. But it is still on balance the case that this the federal student loan uh, program is a net money maker for the taxpayer, which means then less taxes. Right. And so if if. Um, if, if we do things like increase uh, forgiveness programs and things like that, that would probably lead to some tax increases, but only because the taxpayer is doesn't have now this sort of source of profit that that it had for a very long time. And so, you know, one question then is like, should the student loan program be a be a profit making enterprise to the to the government and to the taxpayer, or should 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 it actually go the other way? Is it reasonable to say that uh, even even if we had some a student loan program that that it doesn't need to pay for everything or even generate money itself, but in fact is is okay to be subsidized by the taxpayer to to some degree? This this is a 
uh, sort of another source of the frustration that, that led me to write the article is that there is this background assumption that the it is right for the student loan portfolio to be profitable or at least to not cost anything and that's not obvious to me right that like you can have a student loan system that asks people to pay you know some some something it pays in, in asking individual students individual borrowers to 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 pay to put money toward the cost of their education it does not follow necessarily though that they have to pay back more than they borrowed or even or or, or even exactly what they borrowed and you know it may still make sense for the federal government to pick up some of that share for the taxpayers to pick up some of that share. You write that the lie that leads to these fictional numbers is federal budgeting uses a cost methodology that grossly overstates how much taxpayers will pay for student loans and masks that the government is likely still making a profit from them, even those that they may someday cancel. Does that profit cause a conflict of interest when it comes to the federal government reporting on student uh, student debts, when the government makes money off of those debts? Is there any conflict of interest there that you see? Yeah, there is. Um, and, and I think this is this is sort of a, a, a subtle and sort of nerdy point. And I and I and I, I won't blame people to if, if sort of their eyes glaze over as soon as we start talking about accounting. But I think it's really important to understand how the government sees this, this, you know, the, the student loan portfolio. And so as I talk about in the piece, the government uses a system of accounting where they instead you, so you could imagine a system where they say, and this is how it used to be, government makes a loan that that's, you know, that's, that's, that's spending, that that's money that goes out the door. And then later somebody pays back the loan and that that's, that's revenue. That's money coming, coming back into the government. But all that 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 revenues down the line that happens in the future. They, that's not what they do now. They they do a system where they basically say when the loan is made, we're going to make an estimate of how much our future like the the future repayments are going to be, including interest and everything else. So the, so that they sort of calculate their expected future payments and future profit from from the loan, and then immediately sort of net the two together and say. So in the year I make a loan, I I I lend out X, but I'm gonna I'm gonna estimate that I will receive back Y over the life of the loan once as somebody repays it, and that difference, you know, X minus Y is either the net uh, 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 loss from the loan or the net profit from the loan, and that gets treated as revenue or cost in the in the in initial year of the loan. So what happens is that like, and this is where the conflict of interest arises, is the government immediately books what they think is going to be the profit from the loan and spends that money on on food stamps and highways and and jet fighters, right? Uh, fighter jets. Like that's they they immediately spend that money, right? It's almost like it's it's not a perfect analogy, but it's almost like you know your house has gone up in value, so so you take out a big home equity loan and spend that money. And then it turns out the house isn't worth quite as much as you thought. Okay, your house has still gone up in value, but maybe it didn't go up quite as much as you thought. And suddenly you feel like you're underwater in terms of what you borrowed, and you feel like you're you're losing money. It's it, the federal government's basically the same thing has happened. They've they have borrowed against the student loan portfolio by spending that money in the first year of the loan, 
And then later, because of the expansion of income-driven repayment, because of economic conditions, because of you know, one-time forgiveness, whatever it is, it turns out the student loan portfolio is not, has, is not as valuable as they thought. It's still valuable. It's just not as valuable as they thought. They suddenly, now they feel like they, they, they owe money, like they're underwater and they have to pay back some money. That's essentially what's happening here, okay? It's not that the taxpayer is losing money. It's that the taxpayer spent money they didn't have yet and, and we're wrong about it. <laughs> um, and so the conflict is that Ed, the, the Department of Education is a little bit freaked out about this. Like they're a little bit freaked out about the fact that that money's already been spent and that if they don't make back all the money they thought when they first estimated the value of the loan, they're going to have to go back to the taxpayers. They're going to have to go back to Congress and say, you know what? We need some of that money back. Um, we, we spent too much of it. We, 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 we took out too big of a home equity loan and now we got to pay the pay back the bank, the bank here being, I guess, you know, the treasury department or the federal reserve. Um, and so that's the conflict of interest, right? Is that they're a little bit freaked out that, and it's not their fault, like they didn't write the budget rules, but the budget rules have this effect of saying to them, you, you know, you've, you've spent more money than, than, your, than this portfolio is actually gonna generate and, and now we need some of that money back. And they're a little bit freaked out about that. But that doesn't mean that the portfolio is not still making money, if, if you know what I mean. They're just uh, not exaggerating, but they are just overestimating how much that those loans are worth. So you write the government inflates the amounts uh, borrowed using uh, arbitrarily high interest rates subject to a series of deeply complex and, and I would stress this, opaque rules. Does this process need transparency? And if it does, why isn't it transparent already? What impact would transparency have on the public understanding of student debt? Yeah, I mean, so so this is the this is this is an inflation process that I call it through through the interest charges. So, so um, you know, the the interest that the loans charge is all set by statute. There's nothing that they can really do about it. it, it it's not you know, it's it's not a market interest rate. It's not the government borrowing rate. It's a statutory rate that's set by by law to be pretty high. So for graduate student loans, for example, it's you know, by statute, like 4.6% percentage points higher than the, than the government borrowing rate. So that's like baked in this profit, right? Is that they basically, the government can borrow at 1.5 and lend at 6.3 or whatever it is. And like, so you immediately just automatically have that, that profit, that spread. Um, that is that, that, they, and that's what they're banking when they do the, that budget calculation I mentioned. Um, but the problem is, so, but it gets, it gets even more complicated because that's just what the sort of statutory interest rate is. It actually, the actual interest that someone will pay on their loan is essentially, no, literally unknowable when you take out the loan, because there are so many complicated ways in which the interest is, is subsidized or, or, if it isn't, if it, if it's accrued, does the accrued interest get capitalized back into the loan balance or not? And if so, how much? Um, it, 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 I, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to even you know go into it because it's it's really complicated, and a lot of it is because of the way that um, subsidized loans work, and then also the income driven repayment programs, 
where a lot of a lot of what's going on. And now we also have some of the, the pause on interest accrual um, during this this uh, pause in student loan payments and, and, and things like that. So there's a lot of very complicated and very different rules depending on what repayment program you're in. Um, a lot of different different ways in which interest is is calculated. Um, so, so there's two, there's essentially two things. Like, why is why is the government charging high interest rate at all in the first place? And then what what are they actually charging? Because you don't because you can't really know how all these rules are going to affect you. And I should just emphasize that this is not the only way. Okay, so these high interest rates were put into place, as I mentioned, because it was a way to um, essentially bribe banks and, and other private lenders to, to, to lend money to, to students who otherwise didn't look like they would be all that good at credit risk. Um, and, and, but, but, now, but now that's the, the, those legacy interest rates are now also what the federal government is earning. So, so it, it, the reason we have high interest rates, even if it were a good reason at the time, question mark, um, is it, that, though that logic certainly doesn't apply when it's the federal government as the lender. But, but secondly, you can ask, what, why are we charging interest at all? Um, okay, maybe the, the, the federal government, maybe they're borrowing some money and they should be you know, covered for that. But like that rate is super low. It, it, at most, it's like around one and a half percent right now. Other countries that have student loan programs similar to ours, not at the same scale, of course, we, we do way more student lending than other countries, but student, student debt is, is a feature of higher ed finance in other countries. Australia has a, has a pretty uh, robust um, income-based repayment program that is, you know, I think it could be a good model for us. They, for years, didn't charge any interest at all. And, only, and this goes back to the 80s. And only recently has started charging um, just like the rate of inflation, uh, which okay, it's a little higher now, but for a long time it's been pretty low. Um, so the interest stuff, I think, is really central to this story, but it's also really hard to get your uh, to get a grip on because of how convoluted our system for charging interest is. And you point out that for grad plus loans, the current interest rate is 6.3%, set by statute to be 4.6% above the 10-year Treasury note yield. This rate has little to do with the specifics of an example you give of a student, Mark's creditworthiness. It is hard-coded into the law to create profit for the lender, which since 2010 has always been the federal government. Other than student loans, is there any other kind of loan that you know about that is this far above the 10-year Treasury note yield? Because this is far higher than interest on a 15-year or even a 30-year home loan or even a seven-year car loan. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good good point. I mean, if, as a as a form of consumer debt, yeah, it's really high. I mean, I suppose maybe you know credit cards maybe would be would be higher, but that's you know, and 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 in some sense we should we should understand student loans as being somewhere in between the two. So so, uh, you know, it's 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 comparable to mortgage debt in the sense of like borrowing that people are ostensibly using to build up an an asset of a of a sort. Um, but unlike mortgage lending and more like credit card lending, it's an unsecured loan. So there's no there's no a collateral for the loan, and there really can't be. I mean, that's the th that's the thing about student borrowing is, and this is a well known market failure. It's why we have a 
a sort of why we have public loans, you know, government loans here, because it's, 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 it's a, it's a well understood market failure. Um, that, that, you know, a lender is, is probably going to be reluctant to lend to somebody, even if they're likely to have a higher income stream because of the education when there's no collateral for, for the loan, which, you know, as your typical 18 year old is unlikely to have any assets that they can pledge to, to secure a loan. Um, so, so, you know, you could say, okay, and, and people do say this, they say, well, all right, yeah, sure. It's higher than, than mortgage lending, but that's not the right comparison. We should be comparing it to other kinds of unsecured lending. And, and when you do that, you say, oh boy, aren't the, aren't the, aren't the interest rates great. It's much better than, an, than, a, than, a, than a credit card. Maybe it's even better than a private student loan interest would be. There is still some private student loan lending, although it's a pretty small percentage of, of all student debt, uh, student lending. Um, so, you know, so, but, 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 but I think that the better way to think about it though is, is, is that it's really not like either of those two loan programs because it's, it's government lending. It's it's a it, it is a the, the the student loan system should be thought. In my view, you mentioned at the top that I'm primarily a, a tax scholar, though though about half of my work now is sort of related to the federal student loan program. I think that the better comparison is to is to other types of public funding, such as tax driven you know direct spending, and that when you start to make that comparison. Um, you, then you start to ask questions about like, why should we be even charging interest at all? And you point out in your example again, in fact, Mark will be paying the highest interest rates of any student borrower. Interest for grad plus loans are set by law at one percentage point higher than other direct loans, not because they are higher yeah. risk loans, they aren't, but because legislative drafters have over the years tweaked the interest rate formulas until they got the revenue they needed to satisfy budget scoring rules. As a result of these arbitrary interest rates, the student loan program has generated a profit to the government of as much as 10% or more on the average loan. How much has that contributed to the higher cost of a college education in general? Is the government gouging students when it comes to interest in student loans, or is that an unfair statement to make? I mean, it, I, it's it's some it's it's in that neighborhood. I mean, I think so. Again, I think this is this is like what makes me want to tear my hair out is people say, "Oh, like th th it's it's not fair to cancel this person's debt." But then you say, "Well, what if a lot of that debt is accumulated interest, and what if that interest was calculated in a completely arbitrary and unfair way? Then, like, what what are we actually giving to that person, right? If we if what we cancel is some of this is really just this accumulated interest, and that interest was kind of unfair in the first place." what have we actually given anybody other than relieving them from having to pay this kind of ridiculous uh, overcharge of, of interest? And I think, you know, the, the choice of the interest rates seems like, you know, when you look at something like, oh, we're charging 6.3%. You think, okay, somebody, somebody has done some work to figure out that that's the right interest to charge for balancing the credit risk of, of this pool of, of loans, yada, 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 the type of thing that would like affect why, why uh, you know, what interest your bank is charging on on new mortgages, right? You sort of think there's some process that's going into determining what that interest rate is. And that's just, that's not what's happening. That This is an, an interest rate that's fixed by statute. The statute was written decades ago. 
And when it was written, they chose the interest rate because they didn't want to make student loans look like they cost money. I mean, we see this all the time in, in, in other legislative kind of negotiations and all that. I mean, I think we probably, you know, your, your listeners probably know well about, you know, things like the reconciliation rules and, and, uh, and, and uh, the filibuster and all the, you know, the, the ways in which you have problems if um, getting your, getting your legislation through Congress, if it's going to cost a lot of money or raise the deficit and all that kind of stuff, it, it affects not just the politics of it, but the, the actual legislative path and, and, and procedure for passing legislation. So there's a lot of incentives to kind of play with the numbers and that's what's going on here. They played with the numbers to get the, to, to make it, you know, easier to pass the legislation in, in like the nineties. And, and that's what we're stuck with. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't, it, it, you asked if it's, if it's, if it's gouging, I mean, I think it, it has the effect of, of gouging. Um, but I think the source of it is kind of this more complicated and sort of broken budget process. Just a couple more questions for you, John. So how high risk are student loans in general? Aren't you know, lenders at the federal government in this point forced to loan to students no matter their credit rating or potential risk, thus making a large portion of student loans very risky? I mean, not really. This is the thing. I mean, yeah, yes, there's there's no everybody can get a loan uh, by right. I mean, with some exceptions for things like felony convictions and stuff like that. But 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 yeah, you can sort of get your you everybody has a right to borrow a certain amount from the government. And so some people are going to be more or less risky. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, it's important to, to, to note again that on balance, the government's going to get paid back at, at more than they lent out. That, that still remains the case. Um, and, uh, and the people who are borrowing are, you know, by and large, turn out to be pretty good credit risk. I mean, one of the ironies of the student loan program is that the biggest debts are actually some of the safest ones and that the most defaults or the large, larger, a disproportionate share of the defaults or, or, or borrowers who are in distress are very relatively low debt amounts, but they're people who either didn't complete college or maybe they went to predatory for-profit schools or things like that. Um, so, so in some sense, the, the worst performing loans to the government are these are, are the smallest loans. And, and some of the really big loans are, are, are the safest. And it's, a, so it's a little bit of an irony there. Um, and that I think if people want to think about um, protecting borrowers, they should think maybe more about the, some of the sources of these things. Like how do we get how do we get people to maybe make sure they complete college? How do we rein in some of the more predatory schools and things like that? You write or you ask, does this mean we must cancel all student debt? You could argue that given the clear financial benefits of higher education, it is responsible to ask students to bear some of the cost of that education. You could also argue that given the clear benefits of the country of an educated population, the government should make that investment in the public interest. So does the student loan process lead to fewer financial benefits for students, disincentivizing the attainment of higher education? And if so, do student loans lead to the government investing less in the public interest? Because we always hear complaints about U.S. students not doing as well as students in other countries. So I'm wondering, are we less educated because of student loans? I mean, that's a tough question because I think we... We tend to have higher, at least enrollment in 
higher education in this country than in some of the other countries. Um, but maybe, but we also have a lot of non-completion. So it's so you know that the, the, we have more access to college in some ways than other countries, and it's partly because anybody can just go and like borrow the the, the money they need to pay to go. Um, but we don't do a great job at uh, at getting everybody through all the way through college. Um, and I think that, you know, we talked earlier about this kind of the, the net tuition issue or the price discrimination issue where uh, there's a high list price, but then heavily discounted based on people's ability to pay. And then, and then, you know, with the understanding that people can finance that some of that with loans that they then pay from future income, et cetera, like that's the logic behind it. And you can kind of see how someone might think that would make sense. But as tuitions have gone up, you have this situation where maybe at the margins, there are people who look at a look at college and say, that's what you're charging for tuition. And I have to borrow to do that. Forget it. Right. But I think, you know, what I think is is missing in that calculation is most people aren't going to pay list price. They will get some discounting. So you're so so it's lower price than than the than that list price. So the list price is maybe creating a barrier that's not a, a perceived financial barrier that's not as high as it actually is. And then once you take out the loan, and this is where I think some of these things like income-driven repayment become really important. Income-driven repayment is a is a is a very flawed system, but in its idea, I think is really a good one, which is saying. Basically, what you should be paying back is based on how you do financially after you get your degree. You know, the idea, like you mentioned at the start, the, 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 the claim is that if you borrow to invest in your education, you'll have more income afterwards to pay back the loan. And if that's true, great, but it's not true for everybody or in the same degree. So income-driven income repayment is a way to basically say, let's just say you only have to pay back based on how well you do after school. So the income driven payment programs generally say, pay 10% of your income for 20 years, and then we'll cancel any debt that appears at, that still remains after that. If that program worked really well, then again, the sort of the amount that you actually borrowed to pay that very variable tuition cost is, is sort of less important than, than, than what your income stream is gonna be after college, but I think that's also hidden because people think, oh, I, I, I have a big debt and that debt is sitting on my balance sheet and I am you know, insolvent because of it. Uh, this is one of the, I don't know, sort of tragedies of using a debt-based system to do what is really more like uh, an income tax a little bit, right? If you think about paying an income based payment for a for a publicly provided good that's that's kind of what it is if it, if income driven payment worked really well um, but by running it through a debt system and that debt being used to pay this very variable tuition cost it, it's so hidden and and also then um, burdened with the trappings of everything that gets associated with debt that the promise of that sort of a program is is unfortunately kind of lost 
I've got one last question for you, John. We've been speaking with John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie. The numbers thrown around in the debate over whether to cancel student debt are made up. John is professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and a visiting professor of law at Fordham University School of Law, where uh, John teaches and writes on tax theory and policy, as well as the federal student loan program. You can follow John on Twitter at Jake Brooks Tax and look for his upcoming book that's going to be uh, published by Yale University Press on the hidden welfare state spending. One last question for you, and I promise, John, we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. To you, what explains why the government would disincentivize higher education? Uh, Are they choosing profits over people or pupils, if you will, because of a conflict of interest in the federal government? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I I fear that that's where we're going. That because of how central federal, you know, government-backed debt financed uh, tuition is to the whole system of higher ed, that the way a lot of the debate is going now is not how do we better educate the population in a financially reasonable way. It's more, we should not, we're educating too many people, right? You see that, that is a flavor of the debate that I think is, is dangerous that people say, because, because these debts have gotten large and we've talked for you know the last hour about how they've gotten large and that it's not actually related to how much a person is receiving or the risk that they'll pay back what they borrowed but because these debts have gotten so large people are now asking a question like should this person even be going to college in the first place um and that is i think a really unfortunate way for this debate to go um if 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 the if if that we think because of a because of a misperception about the financial solvency of the student loan program and again it is solvent but but because of a perception that it's not if the policy solution is send less people to college then then we really are sp- cutting off our nose to to spite our face John, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today because this is a very intense and complex situation that you describe in very good terms. And people should check out your article at the American Prospect. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. And when your book comes out from Yale University Press, please contact us because we'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks, Chuck. I really appreciate your attention to this issue. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If that conversation with John R. Brooks on the big student lie, big student loan lie, hmm, was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you... We got nothing, so thanks for your support. Alex, please remind the listening audience, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Wojek R says, hopium. 
<laughs> God. Mark A says, ring around the collar. Damn, we're going back in time with these references, aren't we? <laughs> wow. I just heard that reference the other day, and I couldn't believe that somebody made that reference, seeing as how it's like 50 years old. Ring around the collar? Yeah. What were people doing back then with their collars? I don't know. Alex G says, negative attitude. <laughs> what are you testing positive for? What are you testing positive for? Who said that? That was Alex G. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kim G says, that song stuck in my head. <laughs> John T says, do you really need a reason to test positive? What are you testing positive for? Greg M says, an underlying vibe, which informs me that although everything has or is turning to crap, life is still pretty groovy. <laughs> well, vibe and groovy in the same answer. Sloan L says, hopes and prayers. <laughs> Nowak W says, negated positivism. <laughs> Ladio says, pork chops. <laughs> Guess what Laddie had for dinner? What are you testing positive for? Lisa B says, ennui. And finally, Warren L. says, toxic positivity. Email us, message us uh, via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and topic suggestions or your answer to this week's question from hell. Or tell us anything you'd like to share, like us to share with the other listeners on the show, and we will likely read it on air. Andrew sent us a hangover cure. Andrew writes, Neocon Rag says celebrity chef hangover cure has nothing to do do with food or liquid. Instead, transcending one's current form and becoming not human may be essential. He then sends a link to an article at insider.com with the headline, Gordon Ramsay says this go-to hangover cure is exercise. The fact that a celebrity, especially a cruel celebrity who was happy to make a living off of insulting and humiliating people who were on his show, that a celebrity has a hangover cure automatically disqualifies it as a hangover cure here on This Is Hell. We are adamantly anti-celebrity, and if a celebrity came in here right now, I could not care less. That's why the vast majority of people you hear on our show are not only not celebrities, they don't have any interest in becoming celebrities, at least the majority of them. But here's the part from the insider story about Gordon Ramsay not being human, which makes a lot of sense when you see how inhumane he is to contestants on his shows. The insider reports on Tuesday's episode of whatever the name of his new show is that I will not report or support or promote. The Michelin starred chef and his co-hosts ate, cooked, and drank lots of cocktails throughout Greece after a day of wine tasting in Attica, which is a town in Greece, apparently. I don't think he was in the prison. Ramsey's friend and co-host, whatever his name is, again, I'm not going to mention it here on the air, asked the chef what his favorite cure for a hangover is. Gordon Ramsey said, I run. Or a 10 ka on the rowing machine. While his friend was surprised and called him not human, sometimes the celebrity chef has been vocal about his love of exercise, which he previously told the Daily Mail which makes sense that he would be talking to a rag like that. So even his friends know Ramsey's not human. By the way, exercise is a long-known hangover cure, and we mentioned it way back in the 1990s, so in reality, the article is not about a hangover cure or Ramsey's inability to act like a human being. It's about promoting whatever the hell the name is of his latest TV show, which we will not promote. But thanks for sending anyway, Andrew. It gave me the opportunity to take shots at Gordon Ramsey, which is uh, somewhat cathartic. Thanks to David who emailed informing us that the local neighborhood head shop up here in West Ridge is closing after over a half century in business. David sent a link to an article in the Chicago Sun-Times last week headlined, Not So High Times for Chicago's Oldest Head Shop as Adam's Apple is to close after 52 years in business. 
The article states, once a counterculture staple, it's closing on January 31st after 52 years selling smoking accessories. Owner Shelley Miller hoped legal weed might have saved the business, but it didn't. The Sun-Times also reported one might imagine these would be boon times for Chicago head shops now that the once illicit product they were always intended to support is being sold legally with the government's encouragement. Not so for the Adams Apple, the purveyor of pipes, papers, and other smoking accessories in West Rogers Park that's believed to be the city's longest surviving such business. On January 31st, owner Shelley Miller plans to close shop for good. Miller, 75 years old, began operating Adams Apple in 1969, not long after returning from the Navy, which stationed him on a destroyer in the South China Sea during the Vietnam War. Vietnam vet comes home in 1969 and thinks, I can make a lot of money in drug paraphernalia. That's a weird thing to happen by doing your tour of duty in Vietnam, or not. The Sun-Times continues, there were more head shops in Chicago then and in the years that followed, but none lasted as long as Adam's Apple. In those early days, he says... There weren't a lot of other places to even buy rolling papers. High Times Magazine recognized the store in a 2018 piece on pioneers of paraphernalia that focused on 10 legendary head shops. The final nail was the COVID-19 pandemic, keeping customers away even more. Miller says he kept the doors open in hopes that Illinois' legalization of recreational marijuana might boost sales. It did not. For many years, the business operated on a wink and a nod, relying on euphemisms to advertise its purpose. Even in this age of legal weed, a sign behind the cash register says, all accessories are designed, marketed, and intended to use with tobacco stuff and legal herbs. The reporter states, I was absolutely stumped by Miller's large selection of containers of what appeared to be household products, such as Pringles, Comet Cleanser, and Aquanet Hairspray. Is this for munchies? Cleaning supplies for the pipes? Miller explains, it's a poor man's safe. And then he screws the bottom off the hairspray can to reveal a hidden compartment. Why didn't he try to capitalize on the switch to online sales? He says he's never owned a computer, which he attributes to paranoia from the 1970s. He says, I was surveilled, followed. I've had people try to set me up. Miller says he spent a night in a police lockup in 2001 after undercover officers bought a water pipe, calling it a bong in the report. That's a word Miller would never use. Shelley says, anybody who used an illegal term, well, we would kick them out. A lot of people say, thank you. I did a service. I should feel good about it. And mostly he does. So as for my relationship with Adam's Apple, there's a couple of things. I talked to Shelly one time, and he had a sign in the front window for Bernie Stone to be elected as our alderman, to be re-elected as our alderman. And the committeeman he was running with was, some, was somebody with the last name of Moses. So in the window, it said, elect Stone Moses, which I found hilarious. And I asked him, I was like, why do you have a Bernie Stone sign in your window? Bernie Stone is awful, just an awful alderman. And he said, we love Bernie Stone. We always put his signs in the window, and I always wondered if that had any relationship with why Adam's Apple remained open for so long. As for what happened with me at Adam's Apple, I shopped there many times. The glassware I currently use is from Adam's Apple, and it was very expensive, but I was supporting a local business, so I didn't really care. Uh, the head shop was convenient, 
was very old school in a garden apartment on the 6,000 block of North California, south of Devon, between the fire station and the Yeshiva Derech Torah High School, of course. And it is the only store I've ever been in where the owner, Shelley himself, told me not to buy the glass cleaner he was selling at 25 bucks a bottle. Instead, he suggested just use 91% rubbing alcohol and add some kosher salt, naturally. Let it sit overnight, then shake well the next morning. The abrasion from the kosher salt and the alcohol will get your glassware as clean as possible. And you know what? It works, except for the first year of COVID-19, when 91% isopropyl was very hard to come by, and 70% is not a very good substitute. He also told me, look, just empty your bong every night and run hot water through it. Of course, the problem with that is remembering to clean your bong before you crash when you're stoned. So thanks, Shelly and Adam's Apple for your years of service and having the appropriate tools for me to imbibe. I truly appreciate it. And thanks to David for alerting us that the local head shop is closing. Alex, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? As tomorrow on Wednesday, Jeff Nesbitt will be on to talk about his Gizmodo article, How Big Oil Rigs the System to Keep Winning. Did you ever go to Adam's Apple? No. I had a pass by it on the way to Wuchon, which is (laughs) still open, thank God. I've never been inside Adam's Apple. And also, uh, Jeffy... Uh, on Wednesday, surrenders to his happy place. Oh, Jeffy surrenders to his happy place. That sounds like good. And if you do go in Adam's Apple, Tom, you heard me mention it on This Is Hell, and he'll stare at you blankly, thinking, what the hell are you talking about? So thanks to our guest, John R. Brooks, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Big Student Loan Lie. John is currently writing a book on hidden welfare state spending for Yale University Press. Follow John on Twitter, at Jake Brooks Tax. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show, is Alexander Jerry, and with him is Sebastian Whooper. Thank you both, Alex and Sebastian, for being here today. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>